Hello and welcome back. It's been several years and a pandemic, uh, but we are back. It is Darker Materials, the podcast where we talk about the HBO slash BBC original show, His Dark Materials. Uh, I'm Dave Corkery and I'm back as always uh, with my lovely co-host Helen O'Hara. Hello, yes. Yeah, so we will be talking today uh, everything to do with episode one. This episode will therefore have spoilers for episode one of season three of His Dark Materials. Um, we will be trying to keep the spoilers confined to this one episode. In some of our interviews, we may have a little bit of stuff that delves into Philip Pullman's original books on which all this show is entirely based. But primarily, we are going to be talking all about episode one, recapping the episode and also chatting to some of the people this season who made the show. That's right. And uh, Helen's done some uh, great interviews in the bag. So we've got James McAvoy, Jack Thorne, Jane Tranter, the uh, executive producer. So some awesome stuff coming up. If yeah, as, as Helen said, if you haven't read the books, but you are watching the show and you want to be completely spoiler free, then yeah, maybe come back to the interviews after might be the safest thing. But I think most of you have read the books, right? Let's face it. I feel like most people probably have. And um, and also maybe, you know, uh, as we speak, you know, binging the entire series on BBC iPlayer. If you're in the US and you're listening to us while watching it on HBO, I know you guys are doing two episodes a week. So you may be ahead at one point, behind at another point, but hopefully just go episode by episode, guys. It's great to be back and great to see this show again. Great to be back for the big finale for the book that is easily the most difficult to adapt of the trilogy. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm super impressed that they've even attempted it. Uh, exactly. And so, so far, yeah, from what I've seen, I think they're doing a good job because, it, yeah, it's incredibly difficult. It's a complex book, isn't it? Because the first two are very much like, here's, you know, here's a world. This is the, this is the world building. There are demons. And then it's like the second one's like, yeah, okay, the, you know our world, and then uh, and uh, and also here's some spooky specters, and this one is like, oh God, and uh, <laughs> and the authority, and and that that's encapsulated really straight from the off here. I think they they must have just said, oh, we're going to have to do a big old exposition dump to to get all that out of the way, right? Yeah, very much. So there's a, what I thought was a, actually a very good recap of the previous two seasons, kind of reminding us who's who, what's what, where's where, and leaving us where we were left at the end of last season, which was with uh, Will Parry, Amir Wilson's character, had uh, you know met and befriended Lyra. They had started to work together to figure out this this giant adventure, figure out this this world. Will had spent his entire lifetime looking pretty much for his absent father, John Parry. He finds him and loses him almost. Most instantly, Andrew Scott's Joe, Joe Perry. That's how it happens. It's oh, happens just just a heartbreak, just an absolute heartbreak. And then he goes back to find Lyra to find that in the meantime, she has been kidnapped essentially by her mother, Mrs. Coulter, Ruth Wilson's character, and is now locked in a box, being taken to places unknown uh, by you know what Will calls the worst person in the world to look out for Lyra. <laughs> he's, he's not wrong. He's, he's not, not he's not entirely wrong. As as mothers go, she's not in the top ten all time best mums. She's trying. I mean, full mark I mean almost she's almost more scary when she's trying though. This is her trying really hard to be a good mother, but that her idea of being a good mother is you know, it's 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 Munchausen by proxy, really. It's <laughs> Munchausen by Mrs. Coulter. It's you know, keep keep him drugged up. It's the only way to keep him safe. Keep <laughs> Keep him locked in the house. Well, that's it in this first episode, isn't it? Because it's we're in the odd position where 
the girl that we've been following pretty much for two seasons, uh, you know, the lead character of the show is, I mean, it sounds like a soap opera. She's in a coma, but she's, or she's, she's drugged. She's in a drugged sleep administered by her own mum. So she's kind of out of the picture in this episode, apart from what we see. We, we do see her almost instantly. We see her in a strange place that is pretty obviously because she meets her old dead pal, Roger, it's the land of the dead. So she is having these dreams where she's going to the land of the dead. And that's the only thing Lyra gets to do in this episode. So you have the quick recap to sort of set up, okay, this is where our leads are. We also have a sort of angelic forward. We have, we had angels appear at the end of the last season and angels play quite a big role in this episode. And one of them explains their whole sort of context that there is this authority who calls itself the creator. Some angels have rebelled against this authority who, whose right-hand man or right-hand angel is Metatron. And they are now siding with Lord Azrael, James McAvoy's character, Lyra's dad. Also not father of the year, by the way. No, not so good. Not so good. And so we are literally setting up a war in heaven this season. We are setting up Azrael's rebellion against certainly something that calls itself the Almighty. Well, the stakes cannot be any bigger, right? Right. It's, it's literally, yeah, we are we are the table setting for uh, a war between heaven and every world that exists, essentially. And I think you know, you know, it's ambitious. You know, it's ambitious of Pullman to uh, just push all that into the third book. Uh, and it's, as you said at the top, an ambitious adaptation. But I think, I think, what's what's interesting, I think this episode is very much it's gathering the troops. Lord Azriel's plot is very much around in this episode recruiting Ogunway, who is our uh, in the books. So they've they've tweaked his character slightly, right? Because in the books he was from their their world and had a demon, I believe. And he was a king as well. They've made him sort of more of a, like a resistance leader here. And you can see why this Azrael would travel through worlds to pick this guy up. I mean, he's played by Adewale Akinoye Agbaje, who's just one of those incredibly charismatic, just kind of ferocious seeming actors. You know, just like he's a big guy. He's got that kind of size. He's got that kind of authority, you know? Yeah. You sort of believe that men would follow this dude and sort of take on the authorities in whatever world they're they're in. He's awesome. He'll, he'll always be Mr. Echo to me from last, though. I, I think for a lot of people, yeah. I think for, yeah. for a lot of people. He, you're right, though. He's a great presence. And I think I agree with you, Helen. I think the changes from the book are for the better. I think it's probably... They've taken him from, I think, a different world, but a familiar sort of world uh, where there's a temple rather than a magisterium and they are th going through rebellion and a conflict. But it, it feels quite close to our reality rather than having to, again, like there's a, he's a king and he's got a cheetah demon. I think having someone who's almost more of an audience surrogate because he has to be explained all of this by Azrael. Hey, they're different worlds, blah, 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 blah. Um, and what, what I liked is that we're kind of straight into it. We've got fairies. Yeah, we've got like commandos. Everyone's got guns. J J James McAvoy now has a sort of a sort of a, a Che Guevara sort of style about him. It's got, yeah, like you said, it's gone very um, rebellion faction and militaristic and guerrilla warfare sort of vibes from the whole thing, right? Guerrillas is exactly the right word. It's it's it is the guerrilla war, isn't it? At this point, because because you know, Azrael knows he doesn't have the numbers 
to challenge heaven. He doesn't have the numbers to take on the authority. All he's trying to do is find a way to kind of poke and provoke the authority and then figure out. He just seems confident because he's the most arrogant man in the world. He's confident he'll (laughs) figure out some way to take on the authority. If he can just poke him and provoke him and draw him out, There'll be something will turn up and he'll find a way to imprison him or, or, or stop him or do something. He, he doesn't seem to have a plan. It does seem like he's making it up as he goes along. But like you said, he's so arrogant that his confidence kind of kind of, kind of just brings everyone with him. And it does kind of seem to work out for him. And we also see that intention craft. I think, yeah, for the first time, this right? is cool. It's, isn't it? It's like it's very, it's very spacey sci-fi. I like it. I, I like that it's, I mean, they don't go into it too much in this episode, but, you know, it's powered by, you know, they, they do it in the book. It's, it's powered by your your intentions, right? So you sort of just will it to to go where you want it to go. A bit like the knife, I think. I think I think exactly. That. And I think it's de- deliberately meant to echo that. And, and it, I, Mr. Echo. Mr. Echo. <laughs> and I love that you have to have your demon involved. And there's that moment of kind of focus for both Azriel and Stel Maria to to get the intention craft working. And even then it's it's a prototype he's still, you know, well it crashes. Yeah, so. It crashes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Not so not so good. V1 in the can. And then I you know, I also just love the fact that he's kind of gone uh, spoiler for the James McAvoy interview when we get to that, but I called it going commando. But you know, he's sort of <laughs> it's a very different look for him. And you know, he's waving a gun around. He's leading essentially a raid into a prison to break somebody out, you know. I kind of wish in some ways that we'd seen him recruiting the Galavespians, the tiny little people, because that would have been fun. I do and will call them the fairies from here on. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing about them is they now have these sort of mechanical, almost like helicopter looking wings. Love it. I think the production design of this show is just fantastic. It is very cool. It is very cool. But I do, I mean, there was a part of me that wanted to see the giant dragonflies that they ride in the book, you know. I know. I, that would have been kind of cool too. Can't have everything, Helen. Look, I'm demanding, all right? It's Christmas. <laughs> I want all of the presents. <laughs> right, time for our first interview this season. So Helen was fortunate enough to get to chat to Jack Thorne, one of the writers of his Dark Materials. Uh, now, they do discuss some uh, sort of book spoilers. So if you haven't read the books and you're watching the show uh, completely cold. Uh, they do discuss um, some general plot stuff that's going to happen later on. So, uh, so just be aware of that. And uh, here's the interview. Enjoy. Tell me about season three, because I'll be honest. The first time I read this book, it baffled me. It's become one of my favourites since of the you know yeah. of the whole of the whole series. But it it feels like it's a bigger job than the other two by an order of magnitude. Absolutely. It's fast. It's fast. And it's fast not only geographically, not only, uh, I'm trying to think of the word for personality, not only people-y. You see, this is why they pay you the big bucks. That's amazing. Yes. (laughs) um, But it's also fast intellectually, um, which is uh, the biggest challenge with Philip, which is how do you explain things in a way that it, it doesn't take you forever and will excite people as much as it excites you in the books. Yes, exactly. Because you have literally cosmic stakes. You have a literal yep. battle between heaven and earth. Absolutely. And you also have to focus on 
two teenagers. Yes. And their yes. love story. Yes. And you have the land of the dead and you have all those different things and you have the all the notion of uh, so many different, you know, there's so many different notions flowing around and, you know, yeah, how 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 to be an angel, what is an angel, you know, all that stuff. It's it's quite yeah, it's quite yeah. incredible. So, I mean, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the first two episodes to begin with because we've we've just seen yeah. those, but um you have put in a lot of sort of connective tissue that we didn't previously have with with Lord Azrael, which I think yeah. is something that it did feel quite abrupt in the book. Did it feel important to sort of add that connective tissue and add that kind of context? Yes, for two reasons, really. The first is that it feels important from the telling of the book and it feels important for the telling of, of where Azrael gets to. The second is we've got James McAvoy and you want to do justice to him and his performance and everything he gave us Azrael. And right from the start, we've been leaning into Azrael a lot more than the books did. If you look at one, there's a lot in that episode that isn't in the books because we knew that that, inf that, that relationship was so important. Mm -hmm. And then we had this episode in series two that never happened, but would have, uh, also was about Azrael. And, and yeah, and then, and then, and then coming back to series three, it was like, okay, how do we, how do we make sure we use this character and this actor as well as we possibly can? Did, did some of that unused season two episode become part of this, this material in season three or was that completely no, gone? No, no. Wow. So, some of that became part of Azrael's last speech at the end of series mm -hmm. Series three, we series two. We tried to we tried to use that as much as possible to to fill in those gaps. But that that was just. I mean, that's where James is quite amazing in terms of like it's like you know I had him moving around doing all sorts of things in terms of talking to the you know how does how does someone talk to the sky and then James just opens out his feet, plants, and just goes, I'm just going to talk to the sky now and it's fine. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, and that's uh, it's quite it's quite an incredible skill, really. You know, I guess that's part of the beauty of your job is you you you. You do a lot. You have a, you have a hugely important job to get to a certain point, and then somebody else, at a certain point, it's somebody else's job to figure out what Malefas look like, and it's somebody else's job yeah. to talk to the sky. And, yeah, you yeah. know, so you get to do all the base work and build the foundation, and somebody else can just you know, step no, off. I mean. Yes, absolutely. But then they come back to you too and go, can you fix this and this and this and this and this? Because we've done this. And um, so, yes, no, it is absolutely that. And I'm very, very lucky. But uh, occasionally you get you get handed a ball that's on fire and they go, OK, now hold that for five minutes. And you go, OK, and um, and try not to lose control of your hands. You mentioned we, we just had a, a bit of a Q&A after the screening and you were talking about Mrs. Coulter and her demon and their relationship, yes. their deeply dysfunctional yes. relationship. I, I'm fascinated with this because we've been talking about this now for two seasons on the show. We've been talking about the very, very strange nature of, of what goes on between them. There's almost there's an element of abusiveness. There's an yeah. element of, of self-abuse. There's, there's weird power struggles, it seems, at times, and then also a complete and a total understanding of one another as you yeah. expect obviously with with the person and their demon you know what can you what can you tell us about that what can you what's your take so i mean the thing i said then which i is the thing that unlocked it for me was there is a point when mrs coulter was a teenager where she realized the power she could get from separating from her demon and she studied the witches she worked out how it all worked and then through months she trained herself to deal with the pain of being pulled away from him and you think about who that teenager is and we've talked a lot you know uh, ruth jane dan myself we've talked a lot about um, mrs coulter's teenage years 
most of which will never be visible on screen and never should be visible on screen. But what she went through in order to force herself to do that, yeah. what what place she was in psychologically is the key to her. And then, of course, she fell in love. And she didn't fall in love with the man she was married to. And someone that was all about control and all about forcing herself to learn control suddenly was out of control with Azrael and had a child as a result of that. And that relationship, that those those two things, those two bits of biographical information, the juxtaposition of that and what that means in terms of her sense of shame, her power over herself, I, I think makes her one of the most fascinating characters in literature. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, she's she's astonishing and so so layered i mean he's he's a fascinating guy he's a he's a charismatic yeah. leader he's you know all of this stuff going on but but she's so got so many twists and turns and, and weird corners to her absolutely know? and we have two relationships three relationships that we get to explore to bring light to that god monkey lyra and azrael and and we try to use all three as much as we possibly could with mcphail as the fourth sort of thing that also helps helps with that and just and when you see and Ruth plays this so beautifully her relationship with her shame her relationship with her confidence and when you see all that sort of uh, jumping through together you know it's um it's it's remarkable and she is remarkable she's a remarkable actress she she really really is and the the balance of this show as well it must be something that took blood, sweat and tears over a period of months to get right. Because, you know, at this point, you're, you're at least at the beginning of this season, your main characters are all separated and your main yeah. characters are off doing different things. And just, you know, keeping all the plates spinning must have been quite quite a job. Absolutely. And and the other thing was Lyra is our lead character. And is asleep. And is asleep. So how do you make that relationship live? And so we had her wake up. We had her do various things that just allowed her to have uh, a, a longer relationship with Mrs. Coulter through all that. I noticed that Pan, um, that Pan was a little bit more wakeful than he was in the book at the same time. Is yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. 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 Just to keep it there. Just to a remind you. Absolutely. <laughs> Tell me then about Will as well, because you have... You know, he does feel immediately, he obviously is more grown up because time has passed, yeah. but he feels immediately more grown up. He's off on his own. He's got the knife. He's, you know, healed of his of his wounds, at least, you know, for the moment. It feels like he's a, he's a more in control character than he was when we last saw him. Well, he's had the biggest shock of his life. And I think when you've had big shocks, you cope in two ways. The first way is to crumble. And the second way is to pretend that everything's okay. And to be stronger than you've ever felt because you're sort of forcing down the pain inside you. And I think that's what, what he's doing. The thing that was we, we were always doing with Will, and, 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 and he was a character we talked a lot about right at the beginning of it, was by making him a, a, you know, much more explicitly a teenage carer. All, all, the, all the clues of which are in the book, yeah. but, but really playing into that mm -hmm. and really seeing that He's had to grow up very fast all his life. He's had to suppress things all his life. He's had to cope with all sorts of things, whether it's bullying, whether it's um, his mum's needs. You know, he's had to cope with all these things. And finding a path has always been the thing. You know, he's quite he's quite mono. You know what I mean? Like, you know, he's always like looking forward. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And this is going to fix everything. And then he gets 
thrown around a bit in series two. And then at the end of it, the worst thing happens to him that could possibly happen. And the best thing. And and he's like, okay, I'm just going to keep looking forward again. And so, yeah, yeah. And so Lyra becomes the focus at that point because exactly, exactly. That's, that's the problem he can solve right now. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And because he's so used to playing strong, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, and I don't mean flexing his muscles, though. I mean, now can flex his muscles sure. in quite a, a spectacular way. That's how he does things, yeah. you know. So what are you excited for people to see in the rest of the season then? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, I'm scared about it all and excited. I, I think the end of episode four, and I think you can probably guess what happens at the end of episode four, that that was the bit that most excited me about writing the show right from the start. It definitely does something quite extraordinary in that moment. Really, really extraordinary. And um, it's beautiful because of that. Awesome. Well, listen, can't wait to see it. But Jack Thorne, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really nice talking to you. So let's talk about Will. So Will um, Will is hunting for Lyra. We get a little montage of him going through different worlds, implying time has passed. And well, th- three years has passed. So uh, <laughs> in real life, uh, don't know, probably a few weeks or months for them. What I liked about this is like he seems really, um, We it also tells us he's super capable now uh, and is effortlessly opening and closing these doors. It's just second nature to him, right? Yeah, he seems to have kind of, almost come of age as the bearer of the knife uh, and 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 have a certain degree of mastery which i think you probably need to sell that idea don't you because you know the, otherwise there's going to be the temptation for everyone around him to try to kill him take the knife figure it out themselves and and making him seem frankly just competent with it i think it goes a long way to just establishing this is him he's got this this is what he does so so i really like that for him and and i think amir wilson said that like it it is meant to have been months that have passed you know he's changed his clothing he's got new clothes somewhere he's whether he's bartered or or bought them or something he didn't steal them he's not the type is he i mean one would hope not but then he's had yeah. to do stuff to survive his whole life that's you know, true that's with, true in the absence of his father with his mum's suffering from from you know mental illness uh, sort of undefined but very clearly something quite debilitating you know he's had to get by so so you get the sense that he he's used to making do but one obsession has kind of been replaced by another his his search for his father has now become the search for lyra and so it's a he's still not quite whole i guess you know so then will meets uh, our two Angels, Balthamas. I mean, I can't. I can never. Uh, what is it, Helen? Bar- Baruch and Balthamas. Baruch and Balthamas. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. They sort of tell Will, "Hey, look, you, you know, you're important. We need that knife. Come to Lord Azriel. Let's go." Co- coincidentally, what his father told him, but he's like, "No, I'm a man on a mission, man. I gotta go get get Lyra. Uh, so I'm not doing that." Uh, and I think again, this shows us a mature Will who is. You know, uh, he's not going to be pushed around by two angels that fly out of the sky. He's man and man is determined, right? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of love the way that played out. I really like the fact that, um, you know, he's wary, he's suspicious, he refuses to do what they want to do. But equally, he's not entirely hostile. Like, this is what his dad told him to do. He's not averse to going to Azrael at some point. The point is, that point is not right now, you know? And so it, it, it felt real then that he comes to a, a, a deal with them essentially it's like all right you help me find Lyra you can you can do that clearly you're good at finding people we'll go do that and then I'll come with you to Azrael the the quickest thing you can do to get your aim is help me with my aim and and that again is, is a a kind of maturity for him isn't it he's not just instinctively kind of 
you know, like we've all been as truculent teenagers going, no, no, I don't want to. <laughs> you know, he's he's kind of, he's thinking past that. He's thinking strategically. He's negotiating. He's negotiating. Yeah. yeah. With angels. With um, angels. And so what I, I quite I quite like these two. I'd say, so, so we learned that they're, you know, the, uh, they themselves are uh, in a relationship and they sort of, the, and they, they've got an interesting dynamic as well. You know, they, they, they show us that angels have their own wills and opinions and perspectives. And um, I forget, I can barely remember their names, but I can't remember which one is which. Baruch is the one who goes looking for Lyra and then Balthamos is the darker skinned one who stays with Will. Got it. Okay. Uh, so, and he's the one who's very much the, uh, the the unwilling of the two. He does not like this plan, doesn't like Will, thinks this is a bad idea. Yes. Um, uh, <laughs> right. And and so they make for sort of an unlikely uh, pair uh, and they become an unlikely trio then when they meet uh, old friend Yorick Burnison. Very well. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I loved, first of all, I loved the angels together. I thought their relationship was was beautifully drawn, very, you know, quickly sketched, but it, it wasn't the sort of kind of lip service relationship. It's definitely a real relationship. It's not sort of hinted at. And then yeah. years later, somebody from the show goes, oh, yes, we meant them to be boyfriends. You know, it's they're definitely boyfriends. It's not it's sort not, of- It's not a Dumbledore yeah, job, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I love that. But I'm also so thrilled that we got back to Yorick because, you know, who doesn't love- a giant polar bear. It, it's interesting, isn't it? They've changed the geography from the book. So in the book, Yorick is leading his people basically downriver from the Arctic towards the Himalayas. He's heard there's snow in the Himalayas. And because of Azrael's gate opening, the snow has started to melt in the Arctic. So he's trying to save his people. It's actually kind of a very timely environmental message. He's trying to save his people by taking them somewhere where there might still be snow. And in the book, that's the Himalayas, which is also where... Mrs. Coulter is hiding out in a cave with Lyra. I would imagine that's a cost-cutting exercise. They were probably I, like, I we, think we, it is. We can yeah. animate one polar bear <laughs> or a hundred. I'm sure our friend Russell Dodgson probably made that call at some stage. I think he may have done. And also just it means that they can use that spectacular, I'm assuming Welsh location for the the sort of the little chapel where Mrs. Coulter and Lyra are hiding out. So good, that location, isn't it? Amazing it place, Yeah. I mean, it just looks like a hideout. Yeah, doesn't it? I mean, pro- al- almost the worst place to hide, in a way. <laughs> as as the that little girl we meet points out, you know, they're all they all say that there's someone in there. Um, <laughs> not supposed to be anyone in there. Mm. I mean, I think she. You know, that's interesting. They kept her name from from the book. She's still Amma, which, in all honesty, is probably more of a kind of Himalayan name than it is. Uh, what's the, what's the word? An island in the German Ocean, I think, is is our geographical uh, cue this time. That's all we got. Yeah. So you know, it doesn't. Maybe the name doesn't quite work, but who cares? She's fantastic, by the way. This is apparently her first acting job. Is that right? Oh, yeah. she's, so, she's such a good actor. She's so lovely. But but yeah, I think there's. It's a similar idea that everyone knows somebody's there, but they don't quite know what to make of her. And I think Emma's the one who maybe gets closest to to sort of figuring out who Mrs. Coulter is. And, well, I love. This is the first time we see Mrs. Coulter in this season. And I love that we're straight into deceptive Mrs. Coulter mode, right? But but also so effortlessly charming and sweet and lovely. Like it was so it was so convincing that even I was convinced. Like just oh, she's been so nice to this little girl. And then I'm like, no way, ah, this is Mrs. Coulter. Come on. You know, <laughs> but she but she's like so beautifully done by by Ruth Wilson again. This this sort of um, you know 
using somebody to to further her own gains but so effortlessly and so charming so good and just yeah the the, the way she sort of you know bends down to kind of talk to Amar on her own level the fact yeah. that she just she just knows sign language because of course she's cultured and of course she would know sign language brilliant yeah. and and even the way when when Amma hugs her at the end <gasps> oh the look on her the face the look on her face oh my that's god that's so, so telling she wants that from Lyra and it's almost like and, and she's almost but she's still almost horrified by the fact that she wants that and she doesn't quite know how to react you know she's she's not used to someone touching her with affection yeah. and and it's such a shock to her system and you can see just a world of emotions going through her face in sort of what a second two seconds of screen time it's it's an astonishing bit of acting so good and and it's the and it's the mask slipping right everything yeah. up to that point had been a performance um exactly yeah that is so yeah so yeah as you say brilliantly portrayed so so good my God, like Mrs. Coulter and Ruth Ruth Wilson, we we have missed you on our screens. I mean, it's like it has been many years, but seriously, she is adding dimensions to an already complex character. She really, really is. I thought that was probably the the best single moment, the single instant in the episode. Even though there's much more, you know, big exciting stuff happening. There's, I thought Will's confrontation with Yorick was played beautifully with the knife just the knife move everything yeah. oh so so i cannot fight this amazing amazing he's a good strat he's a good strategist as you said you know he's, <laughs> he is he's, a good strategist, he's figuring yeah. things out as he goes along you know it, it, it explains why he balances so well with lyra because she's all instinct and he's much more cautious and it's you know it's maybe the difference in their upbringing she grew up in this world where she didn't have anyone in particular to answer to but she had a lot of people looking out for her in in jordan college Whereas he grew up essentially looking out for his mum, and and so it's a it's a complete one eighty life experience, but it but it maybe helps explain why they mesh so well together. Oh, I love it! Oh, so good. It is good. It it also makes me love it more talking about it. Um, <laughs> I did find with Emma though, like if and this is a good rule of thumb for life in general though, if someone says to you, "Do you believe in magic? Follow me," then the the you never follow that person. That's a, that's almost Aww. always a bad idea. Oh man! <laughs> how many? Wait, You're no, no Helen, fun. How many? How many creepy magicians have you followed down alleys? I mean, look. Too many. One of them's one of them's got to know the way to Narnia. It's going to happen <laughs> one day. I was getting sort of a uh, black phone vibes uh, with uh, Ethan Hawke from from that whole setup. <laughs> wow, that is that is bleak. If anybody hasn't seen the black phone, really recommend it. It's fun. I just love how all these relationships are, are so layered and all these characters are so complicated and flawed and, you know, capable of great good and great evil often at the same time, you know? You see that maybe most clearly in, in Lyra's parents, but I feel like ultimately we're going to see it in Lyra as well. You know, she was trying to save her friend Roger and led him straight into, well, to his death. So... You know, that's her kind of, I think now driving emotion is to kind of somehow make that right. And uh, and it makes for a fascinating, fascinating heroine. Well, so, well speaking, of, um, speaking of complex characters toying with good and evil, let's go to the other end of the, the spectrum uh, where we have probably the least complex characters who are just evil. Uh, and that's uh, <laughs> Father McPhail and the... And the magisterium. So we get we get introduced here. That's Father President McPhail to you. Thanks oh my very God, much. Excuse now. me. Yeah. Full title, which I love, by the way. I love it's, it. <laughs> it's such a good. Well, it also reminds us of this world where, yeah, it's like uh, state and church have melded 
right? Uh, so yeah, it's just such a, so good. But we get introduced here to um, to a new character, Father Gomez, through the means of uh, you know this moral dilemma that uh, Father President McVale puts forth. You know, we found this book. You know, some drunk people were reading it. It's her- her- heretic. What do we do? And I, we see this sort of test, right? He's got three. He's got three potential candidates. How would you deal with these these heretics? And they all sort of give some answers, but none of them are really quite as awful as Father Gomez, who wins hands down, right? Absolutely. He is. I mean, I, I thought that was a fascinating character on the page, and I think he is so good now on screen. I think that the casting is just superb. But it's that sense of kind of stillness and frankly, fanaticism. That is what the character is meant to be. He is meant to be a fanatic. He is meant to be absolutely uncompromising in his belief in all of this, well, in all of the Magisterium's uh, dogma. And so to see, I thought that was a really elegant way of showing that and demonstrating this guy is just a complete hardliner. There is no negotiation with him. There is no debate with him. He is just going to go for the harshest possible outcome. So when you get from that into this fantastic idea from the book of preemptive penance. I know, right? Oh it's my like, God. And, and he says, uh, he says, I've done that, you know, every day of my life. Like, like it's like you could, the way you can buy credits for doing yes. sins, right? It's like, so, he, so he's basically so confident in his mission and it's it's almost like self. It's, he sees it as a sacrifice, right? You know, I'm I'm doing this for the greater cause, and I, but you know, um, doing these horrible, horrible things. And if there's any doubt that he's horrible, then that's totally washed away by by the fact that his demon is a spider, a spider, it's a right? nasty looking spider, <laughs> really sinister demon. I mean, you know, you thought that the uh, Father President McPhail's uh, lizard was a little bit, you know, shifty looking, yeah. That this is on a whole other level for the Gomez, you know, and I think actually casting someone who is, you know, frankly very young and handsome only makes that more of a contrast and more upsetting, frankly, to look at, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. it's going against that kind of Disney thing of making the bad guy really ugly, you know. If you make the bad guy really handsome, it's much more sinister. Yeah, way more. I agree. He's, I was getting Sir Kristen Cole vibes from House of the Dragon. Oh yes, yeah. very very much so. Yes. So yeah, so I think you know overall a pretty exciting start to the season. Kind of, it's you know there's a lot in this episode of moving players into the right spaces on the board, you know, to a degree. But at the same time, it's really exciting movements. You know, you've got a prison break, for example. You've got you know cutting between worlds. You've got angels. You've got a kid facing off against a, a bear. So it feels like there's a lot going on here, even as we move the pieces into place, and then. You actually end with with a sort of a tragically emotional moment at the end of the episode because this is dedicated to the late great Helen McCrory who died between I think last season and this. She did the voice of Stel Maria, Lord Asriel's demon. I think I believe she was James McAvoy's choice for the role. He he you know he he recommended her because he th- thought as we all I think did that she's she was an amazing actress and had an incredible voice. But yeah, it's, it's a little emotional note that I think nobody wanted or planned on, but. That, that you know pays tribute really nicely yeah sad uh rest in peace helen i think she was tragically young as well it was only mm. in, in her 50s um, yeah, early 50s yeah yeah and um, so victoria hamilton i think has come in to um to voice Stel maria in her absence but yeah very very sad note to end it on yeah it really was you know but i mean fair play to victoria who's, who's done a good job but i think uh, she i think helen will be missed and um and yeah you know well i guess we'll uh We'll see if they can live up to the emotion of that moment going forward uh, through the season. 
is Darker Materials is a stripped media production. Our producer and editor is Maddie Searle. Our executive producers are Kobe Amanaka and Tom Wally. Our hosts are Helen O'Hara and myself, Dave Corkery. A big thank you to Ian Johnson at IJPR, to Bad Wolf at the BBC, and to all our guests for taking the time to chat to us. If you want to chat to us, you can do it at producers at stripped.media. Media.